I'm Jay Bloomfield from Hockey World News, and you're listening to the Hardcore Press Podcast. This is Keely Dunn of FA Jumpers, and you are listening to the Half Court Press Podcast. Hi, I'm Pat Ahmed from Hockey Family and host of Talk Hockey Radio, and you're listening to the Half Court Press Podcast. Hi there, I'm Kaz Casper, coach and player at Western Wildcats and Scottish Hockey Vice President, and you are listening to the Half Court Press. Three Games of Hockey is the 16th season of the Half Court Press Podcast. In this series, Taylor McLeod talks to a variety of hockey players about three matches that have been particularly important to them in their lives and careers. This is John Lee, co-host of the Reverse Stick, the Global Hockey Podcast, and you're listening to the Half Court Press Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Half Court Press Podcast. You join us today with our series, Three Games of Hockey, where... We chat to a, a hockey personality of high distinction about games of hockey, which has been important to them. Today we are with John Lee from Fremantle Hockey Club, famously the Reverse Dick Global Hockey Podcast. Hey, John. Hi, Tao. Thanks for having me. High distinction. I don't think I've had one of them since about grade six in a spelling test. <laughs> um, hi, how are you doing, John? Uh, very warm here today, Teo. We're in the, on a five-day 40 degrees Celsius plus streak, another one coming up tomorrow. So um, oh, it's a bit of a testing time when it's that hot for so long, but we're all well. Because you are based out in Western Australia, aren't you? Yep, in Perth. Yeah, it's, uh, and we've also gone into a whole new round of shutdown borders and COVID, of course, as it's affecting many people across the globe. It's refusing to go away at this stage. How is that affecting hockey? It hasn't yet. WA was due to open its borders in uh, two or three weeks' time, and just last week, the Premier decided they were going to extend border closures, much to the chagrin of many national sporting teams that had relocated to the East Coast in the uh, expectation they'd be able to come back on February 5th. Uh, It won't be happening anymore. It hasn't affected it yet. Last year, we were able to get a full season of hockey in. We had one week where games were postponed because of COVID, but that shutdown only lasted for about five days. So we managed to get a whole season in last year locally, mainly due to the fact that we just cut off the rest of the world and and had very strict borders, and we were allowed to carry on life here in WA pretty much as we normally would, which when we're sitting here watching what was going on across the rest of the world was quite staggering because life did pretty much go ahead as, as per normal last year. Uh, I don't think it'll be the same this year with the old Omicron and things like that going on and big surges in this country. If we can keep things out of the state and we can pretty much stay as we are now, I think locally, community-wise, hockey will go ahead. And the problem will come is if we do get a surge of cases, as we've seen in other sports in other states, teams getting decimated. What do you do if one team suddenly finds itself having to isolate because of COVID? What happens to that fixture? If there's in a statewide competition, you've got 50 teams who are all out of action for a weekend. How does that affect all the fixture? So there's lots and lots and lots that not just hockey has to figure out over the coming weeks, but many sports. Now, you are based in Perth. Yes. And you play for Fremantle Hockey Club, I believe. 
Well, I currently play for Fremantle, have for a long time, since 1992, I think was my first season at Fremantle. Now, I'm going to take over a little bit here, Tay. I'm supposed to be talking about three games, aren't I? Yeah. And you've got your little categories written down with what, okay, so I've, I've got three games in mind and uh, they span basically the, the breadth of my time playing hockey in, in some respects. But when I was thinking about the question about three favourite games of hockey, it struck me that I don't have any favourite games of hockey outside than the ones I've played in. I don't feel an emotional tag to games of hockey I'm not playing in, or for any amount of any sport. I know there's lots of sports people, and you would know plenty of people like this, when their team loses, they're depressed for a week. Yes. And I, I don't have that emotional tag to sports. Sure, I get excited when my team is winning, or my local football team, or when my favourite cricket team is winning or whatever, and I'm disappointed when they lose, but there's no emotional attachment to that happening. Oh, they lost. The whistle went, they lost. Okay, carry on with life. <laughs> Whereas I, I know a lot of people that can't carry on with their life without dragging the emotional connection to the game they've just witnessed along with them. Now, this, for me, gets to the heart of what sport is about. This episode is going to be specifically about sports participation. Now, the beauty of that is once it's over, it's over. It's quite transient. Yeah. The beauty of that is it can never happen again, but we can still have the happy memories afterwards. Yep, that's a good point. What I like about sport, what attracts me to it, is the contest. I love the contest. As you say, the contest is over in that, in that moment. Sport is all about the moment. And when the moment's gone, as you point out, the moment's gone. That's it. It's all about being in that moment. Before we move on, I want to yep. find out a bit more about your club and who you play for. So Fremantle, go Magpies. Go Magpies, yes. Fremantle officially started as a hockey club in 1933. Uh, my, my good mate Greg Bird has done a lot of research and there has been hockey played in Fremantle by various iterations of a Fremantle hockey club since before the turn of the 19th century. Oh, 20th century, yeah, before 1900s and the late 1800s. So there is actually quite a rich history of hockey being played in the Fremantle district. Uh, They originally played, I believe, they've had several home grounds over the years. Uh, For a long time during the 50s, they played at, uh, in East Fremantle, a ground in East Fremantle, and then sometime in the 1960s, they ended up at Stevens Reserve in Fremantle, which is a, a lovely oval that overlooks Fremantle, the town, city, if you want to call it that, uh, has great ocean views, beautiful place to play hockey. It's absolutely gorgeous. You sit up on the hill in the club rooms, the games of hockey were going on underneath you. Great place to watch it. A great place for the teams who played the early game to stand and have a few beers and offer advice to the teams that were playing late games (laughs) below them. It was just a fabulous place to play hockey. And then... uh, Two years ago, we had to bite the bullet and move out of out of the Stevens Reserve club rooms, ostensibly because we are a classic league team. We have aspirations for high performance, to produce high performance players, and you have to have a high performance surface for that. And we were never going to get a, a turf at at the ground we were currently at. So we've moved out to uh, Coburn, city of Coburn, although we're still called the Fremantle Coburn Magpies now. 
or free cock, as I like to say. And uh, we're, we're betting ourselves in there. So it has been quite a successful club over the years. It's, ve- it's been very much a working club, working man's club. You know, Fremantle's a port city. So uh, hockey, uh, especially in England, has this uh, image of being a private school sport, if you want, an upper-class sport. There's still tinges of that in Perth. A lot of hockey was played in private schools and a lot of the, the clubs were based around getting players from those private schools. But at the same time, hockey was huge in the country as well. And so there was a lot of country people that were involved in the game. And then you had clubs like Fremantle that were very much based in working class areas that were working class teams. What have been your achievements, specifically about you? What have you done in hockey? <laughs> played. <laughs> Um, I believe you've got some, some lovely records in the Veterans Leagues. Oh, uh, look, yeah. I think if you play hockey for long enough, you're going to have some sort of success. And the longer you stick at it, the closer you get to any sort of success. I've never been a great hockey player by any stretch of the imagination. The Half Court Press is now on Patreon. Patreon is a well-known and trusted online platform that allows our fans to support the sports journalism that we create. We offer a tiered subscription plan with more content being made available to our fans who choose to spend a bit more each month. We at the Half Court Press would appreciate any and all support that you wish to contribute towards our articles, podcasts and interviews. So how about I continue this conversation moving into my first favourite game, which essentially covers this area. I started out playing at a club called Applecross YMCA, which has now morphed into the local Melville City. Um, and it was a club based around a, a YMCA, a, a local YMCA, and uh, they played in a pink and grey shirt, much like the pink and grey galah. And I was, uh, well, my mum says I was nine. I thought I was ten, but mum tells me I was nine when I started there. And I played three games at the end of my first season, and then in my second season went into goalkeeping and played as a goalie for about two or three years at Melville. Not much joy there. I think we played one finals game in in that period of time, which we lost. And then I went to a, uh, a private boys' school, uh, Wesley College. And initially, I stayed at Applecross YMCA in the year that they transitioned from playing at the local YMCA to their new, now current club rooms in Cardinia, and they changed their name to Melville. So my last year at Melville was their first year as a club. So I played there, I played goals there. But at the same time, I was playing in my school team at Wesley College. So we would play Friday afternoons for school and then Saturday afternoon club hockey. Now, (laughs) training got in the way and uh, club training was Tuesdays and Thursdays. School training was, you guessed it. So something had to give. The local old Wesley old boys team club they had their trainings on a wednesday night so i moved to the old boys club old wesley 
so that I could train Tuesdays and Thursdays at school and then train on the Wednesday night with the, the Saturday afternoon team. So I was at Wesley, not much success in the first couple of years, but at that time that I was Wesley, we had a very successful school program. And I must be said that this is uh, the very early 80s. Now, if you're a hockey person growing up in Perth, in the 70s and 80s was hockey heaven. You could see Rick Charlesworth and Terry Walsh and David Bell and Craig Davies and you know Colin Batch. You could see plenty of other names that are too many to reel off at the moment that lots of hockey people would be familiar with. You could see them every Saturday afternoon sitting at your club. They would play ones at the club and you could sit there and you could watch these guys run around, which is something that we don't have these days. You had someone to look up to. They were easily accessible, highly visible. Oh, yeah. And inspirational? Oh, no doubt. No doubt. And that they were right there. You might not train with them, but they'd be training at the club. So they would have their training on Thursday nights, Tuesday nights and Thursday nights. Everybody would play on a Saturday afternoon. You'd play home and away. And, you know, we didn't have this centralised system of where people play that we do now. The Perth Hockey Turf was built in 1980, but and still until the mid-80s, people could still play home games. Mid-80s, perhaps a bit earlier, but yeah. So as a young player, was this a preemptive hook for you? Was this how you got sucked into hockey by watching these people? Is this where you stayed? Oh, oh partly. I'd always been a bit of a hockey nuffy. I've got a... Um, I've got my old autograph book over in, on the shelf behind me, and it's got lots of autographs like your Terry Walsh's and, and your Charlesworth's and Terry Lease, a name you might not be familiar with, lots of guys, but also names from the Irish touring team, who I can't read one of their names. I don't know who any of these guys are, but I can remember going down onto the field after the game and asking these guys for their autographs. I didn't know who they were, but they were international hockey players, and I'm goddamn going to get their autographs. And so I was a bit of a hockey nuffy, but not very good at it. I loved playing, but I was, I, I was never a fantastic player. And so I'm at Wesley College, and we get to year 11 and 12, the last two years of high school, and... We had a remarkable first 11 team at Wesley. They won the, the local private schools competition two years in a row. I played in the second 11 team, not as goalkeeper. By this time, I'd transitioned out. For school hockey, I was playing left half in the mornings, and then club hockey, I was at left wing. But the, our first division team had Dean Evans at centre half, future Olympian. Uh, his brother, Tim, who played a lot of junior rep hockey, he was in the team. I think out of the 13 that were in that team, two of them didn't play some sort of rep hockey, either at junior level or later on. It was a, an amazing junior hockey team. They were brilliant. Years 11 and 12 in Australia. 16 and 17. Yes. So you'd be 16, 17, 18 years old. Yeah. Uh, eight, by the time I turned 18, I'd, I'd left school. So 16 and 17 in those you. You went to school in the year, year 12 was the year you turned 17, essentially. Where are we now? What, what year are we in? Okay, let's go to uh, 1983. So I'm 16 years old and it's a local Waha competition and our club team, Old Wesley, has been selected in the under 17B category. So under 17As was the, the really top, top teams. 
We were in under 17 Bs, and we did have some pretty handy players. Our captain was a fellow by the name of Peter Kermode, who played with the Thundersticks. He won three national titles with the Perth Thundersticks and coached quite a bit of local hockey, first division hockey here in Perth, played classic league for years. And the other guys that were very, very, very good, Jonesy at fullback, he was a great player. Moving on, we're playing under 17 Bs, and as the season turned out, there were really only two teams in the competition. It was us and Xavier College. Now, we'd never played against Xavier College. We didn't know who Xavier College was. And as the way the season turned out, we were to play them in the last game of the first round. Now, back in those days, there were three pennants up for grabs for a hockey team. There was the uh, minor premiership, finishing top at the end of the year. There was the, the premiership for winning the flag, uh, for winning the finals, the grand final. And then they had this thing called the Challenge Cup that was played between the top two teams at the end of the first round. So we came to the last game of the first round and us and Xavier were both going to be playing in the Challenge Cup, regardless of what who won that particular game. We were the top two teams. So, And the Challenge Cup was to be played the week after we played each other. So uh, us uh, 16-year-old private school boys got our mummies to drop us off down at the game. And we stood there and watched the opposition roll up. Now, remember, this is 1983. Michael Jackson was a big bit hit back then. Remember the gloves with the fingers cut off? Yeah. Remember that gear? Remember the Kung Fu shoes were really big as well. Anyway, we've turned up to the game and we're watching these guys warm up. And a couple of them turned up in cars, smoking with their girlfriends, which, you know, is a bit of a big thing for us. And God, he's got a girlfriend, lucky bastard. You know, oh, well, these guys look a bit rough. Kung Fu pants. Some lovely Kung Fu pants going around. And um, they started doing some warm-ups before the game with nunchucks. Uh, that really put us off a little bit in that first game. We thought that was a bit odd for a hockey team to be sort of out there doing Kung Fu moves before the game. And fair to say, they played the game very, very physically. Uh, <laughs> Probably caused us little 16-year-old schoolboys on the hop a little bit, and they managed to defeat us in that game. So we go into the Challenge Cup the next week, uh, having lost to them the week before, and we got up. We went, we're not taking this from those guys. We're going to stand up for ourselves. And we, we got up and won in a close game. All of the games we played with them were very, very close. So it's one all after two games. Then we get to the end of the second round, so, and we come to the last game of the season, and it turns out whoever wins that game will take out the minor premiership. Ooh, big game. Now, what happens? We get up and we win that game. So we win the minor premiership game, once again close, 2-1. And these games were always verging. Uh, I think if we hadn't have been juniors and we'd played that way as seniors, fights would have broken out. It would have got ugly. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, there, there was a lot of feeling in those games beauty so that victory meant we finished top of the table and took out the minor premiership oh wow two pennants out of two isn't this good yeah so we get to the finals the very next week we play them again in the final the the, the qualifying final so it's a one versus two semi-final the winner goes through the grand final the loser's got to butter up the week next weekend in a preliminary final we lose that game 
And I remember distinctly losing that game because I was playing at left wing and at a very crucial point in that game, an umpire blew me for offside. And at the top of my voice, I screamed out, oh, bullshit, bam, <laughs> immediately. Off you go, sunshine. <laughs> off you go, you petulant little kid. You can get off. Fully deserved. It was stupid. All the rest of it, oh, my God, I've left the team down. And we lost that game. So I felt terribly, terribly bad. I'm not sure if it was my fault, but we let the team down. So that's the fourth time we played these guys. They've won two. We've won two. Each time we've won, we've won a pennant. So we come back the next week to play in the preliminary final, which we win, and we're back up against Xavier in the grand final. And it's one all. It's a very tense, tight game. And uh, my good friend Pete Kermode has a free hit, and he's out in a right half, attacking 20, above the 50 line, not quite the 25. He's got a free hit out wide out there. And I just look over to him. I'm on the left wing. And he looks over, and there's a nod goes on, and he hits the ball. And at this point, I am onside. I've learned my lesson. <laughs> I am definitely onside. And he hits the ball, and I knew exactly where he was going to hit it and exactly where I was going to run. And I raced in, and I've got the ball, and hit it, and bang, it's gone in. Winning goal in the grand final to cap off a year in which we've won minor premiership, Challenge Cup, and win the grand final. And that, to me, sticks out in my head so much. That moment where I stopped the ball and hit it past the goalie. I scored two goals that season. One was in the first game of the season, and one was the goal that won the grand final. And... The, their entire team turned around and started abusing the umpire, claiming I was offside. The entire, all of them. I'm sure parents were abusing the umpire at that stage. Oh, he's offside, he's offside, he's offside. Pete and I knew. I was clearly onside. It was a really classy piece of play that I really had nothing to do with except I stopped and hit the ball. That's one of my favourite games ever, purely because of the entire backstory that went on with us getting to that point. You know, we played you five times, boys. You beat us twice, but every time we won, we got something for it. It was just a really special year and a great bunch of blokes to have played hockey with. And I look back now on that team and think, they were a bloody good team with some bloody good hockey players. So it was a combination of a season-long rivalry against another similar standard? Oh, yeah, we, we were closely matched. We had a bit more finesse than them. They were a bit more physical. But all we had to do was stand up to the physical. They couldn't stand up to the finesse, if you know what I mean. Skill can be beaten by people being overly physical, especially if umpiring allows it. But overly physical can never stand up to skill. If you at least match another team's physical nature and you're more skillful than them, they can't beat you. It's only when you allow your skills to fall apart because you're not standing up to their physical nature. That's when you're in trouble. Now, this was a youth team match under 17s. Mm-hmm. This was your favourite game of hockey as a youth player. Yep. Why is grassroots hockey important? Why is youth team hockey important? How did that uh, prepare you for, for senior adult hockey? Well, I can only answer that in respect of how it used to be. I can't. I can't add to it in respect to how it is now because youth hockey is a completely different thing now. There's always been some form of development of talented players in the game. It used to be that 
that talented player would be noticed within the club, and the club would say, oh, we could probably get him up playing a couple of 16 or 17. He's probably good enough to play some twos games for us or something. Let's see how the kid goes. And it was a much simpler progression path. You played your club hockey. If you were good enough, you played at whatever grade you played at. And if you were better, you got selected in representative teams. Nowadays, they're picking kids out at very young ages to go into special development squads. The kids aren't actually developing before they get picked into development squads. So there's a lot to be said for allowing children to play with other children to a certain point. Whereas now they're, taking, they're pulling them out, in my opinion, too early and giving them badges too early. So, oh, you're an under-13 state player. Well, we all know what the history is of under-13 state players going on to make professional careers out of hockey is. I think we put too much emphasis on a child's ability at those ages rather than just letting them play and compete. See, I got to play with good players at a young age because there wasn't this concentration of all the good players in one spot, in one league. They were spread around. As I mentioned, Peter, he goes on to play lots of great hockey at a national league level. But he wasn't picked up in junior development squads or anything like that. He didn't play junior state hockey. He was bumming around in under 17 Bs. But he still was such a good player that, you know, talent's always going to be there. Whether you're playing under 17 Bs or you don't have to be in a junior development squad to have talent and to progress and become a great player. Are we talking about allowing younger players to play with other younger players in order to come out of their shell? in order to, to find their own expressions in their own time, rather than playing up a grade too early and perhaps developing negative habits? I think what happens is that we mark everybody against the outlier. Dean Evans at Wesley. Dean was always going to play hockey for Australia. He basically finished his year 12 exams and walked into the Australian hockey team at 17, nearly 18 years old. He was that good. There's no doubt. He stuck out like a sore thumb. But you can't judge everybody else against what he's capable of. And yet that seems to be what they're trying to do. They're trying to make every kid the outlier instead of just allowing them to play and develop as they should. Simon Orchard didn't play any in junior rep teams. He came through on the back of just developing and becoming good enough. And the talent's always there within you. The good players will always find a way. What are the key skills in hockey? What are the things that we should be developing at youth level? Hitting, trapping, passing. The very simple basic skills for a start. Because, you know, you, you can win games of hockey just on your ability to hit and pass and trap properly. I get why all the other stick skills are important, and they are, don't get me wrong, but the basic skills that get any team through a game of hockey, regardless of what level you are playing, is your ability to stop the ball when you should stop the ball and make the pass you should make when you make it. So they're two very basic things that are really easy to teach. And I see a lot of poor trapping skills still at international hockey. We had a chat to Terry Walsh about it, and he seems to think that, and I think this as well, that part of it is that, say, in Australia and England, we have this, we have cricket. 
it's it's about hand-eye coordination, right? Whereas a lot of European countries don't have that. They don't play cricket. So they don't get this idea of stick and ball. What's one of the most important things when uh, in technique when, you, when you're playing cricket and batting? It's head over the ball. If you can get your head over the ball, you will trap most balls. Even on grass, even on dodgy grass, it allows you head over the ball is the rule and it works. So often you see people, even in international hockey, trying to trap balls and they, they have the opportunity to move their body and get their head over the ball, but they choose not to. And they miss traps. They, oh, I'll flat stick this one and bang, it goes over, it goes under, it goes wild, whatever it does. And tackling. Tackling's the other thing. I don't think enough attention's paid towards tackling as a skill in our game. When was the last time someone got awarded a, a tackle of a match or a tackle of a tournament? Tackles of your ability to tackle a player with a ball is absolutely vital to a team's success. If you can pick up opposition forwards, how do they score goals? And how often do we see guys just picking up the ball and running and running and running? And they go through two, three, four players. Some of the great players I've admired over the last few years, Mark Knowles. If Mark Knowles used to stand third player behind, so a Denoyer or whoever it might be, you pick up the ball. Wow, I've gone around one, I've gone around two. There's Mark Knowles. Whack. You're not going three, mate. I don't think enough time is spent teaching younger people how to tackle properly. They now tackle, I'll do the flat stick tackles and all that sort of stuff. But positioning yourself so that you can advantage your team by that per- that the attacker not wanting to get tackled by you. Channeling. I don't know these, I'm sure that they, they've probably been told how to channel. How do you position your body when a forward's coming at you? Yeah. Well, there's right ways and there's wrong ways. And if you set up and knowing that, okay, I'm going to set up, I want this guy to go that way. There's every chance he wants to go that way. He will try to go that way. So there's some basic skills. Hockey's also a thinking game. You've got to teach people, the kids, how to think about the game, about field position. Actions relevant to your position on the pitch. Yeah. One of the big things I find in hockey is discipline in that sense of not being ball chasers, being disciplined to play the position you're in. The great Australian teams that we've seen over four decades now, they are very disciplined in the way they go about their game of hockey, really disciplined. The Dutch are really disciplined. The Belgians have become very disciplined. The good teams are very disciplined and they don't rely on show ponies. Sure, they've got show ponies. They've got blokes that can do amazing things with dribbling and do all this wonderful stuff. But the basis of their game is hard work and discipline. The Half Court Press is on social media. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. So, moving on to game two. Game two. What has been your favourite game of hockey as a club player? Well, uh, this was a, it wasn't a difficult one to come up with, I knew, but it's a difficult one to talk about in some ways. It was the 2009 Grand Final in Metro 3s, I think the grade was. And it was the first Grand Final I played at Fremantle, the first one I won as well. 
And it was special for some sad reasons. And I only came into the team with three games to go. I hadn't, I can't remember why. I hadn't been playing, but anyway, I was back fit again or whatever it was. And some of my mates from Fremantle who were playing, they had a guy pull out of their team. Said, come and fill this guy's spot. I would have been 13th man, I think. Come down and fill in. And, and there were just enough games left in the season for me to qualify for finals. So I played these three games and we got to the finals and we got to the grand final and we won it. I must have spent uh, five minutes in the first half, maybe five minutes in the second half on the goal. It wasn't a great game from my personal perspective, but the reason it was memorable is because it was the last game of hockey that my good friend Jason Muskie played. And he sadly passed away from leukaemia just about two weeks before the start of the next hockey season. Jason had been a very talented junior at Fremantle. I'd played some games with his father, as it turns out. And then he he disappeared from the game once he got to 17 uh, and had some issues in his life, as many young people do. And he'd uh, come back to live with his father and come back down to play some hockey. He had a young daughter. And he was trying to put those issues from his past behind him and come back to play hockey and had transformed from this fullback into somehow an amazing forward. The guy could score. He knew where to score from. I saw him in a grand final, 2-0 down at halftime, comes back out after halftime and smashes a hat-trick and they win 4-2. But when I say smashes a hat-trick, every goal he hit, the three goals he hit, were all from within about 10 centimetres inside the top of the D. And the second one roofed it. I mean, a flat strap hit into the roof of the goals from the top of the D. That's really hard to do. Not side netting, not back netting, but into the roof netting. It was one of the most amazing shots at goal. He was a very talented player. Then he was sadly struck down with leukaemia and spent a lot of time in Fremantle Hospital going through radiation therapies and all that sort of stuff you do. And was in a fairly bad way for quite a while, but he recovered and had gotten better and came back and started playing hockey again. And he was in this team that ended up playing the grand final. But about halfway through that season, because I was in mates with all the, a few of the guys there, he'd had a party and at this party he mentioned to us, oh, it's come back. I've got some lumps in my throat and blah, blah. Anyway, uh, he was seeking treatment. And I didn't know at the time, but I found out. Uh, but just before the final started, he'd gone back into chemotherapy. So he'd done two or three weeks of chemotherapy. So that by the time he got to the grand final, he was five or six weeks into chemotherapy treatment for leukaemia. And he played and he scored the two goals in us winning 2-0. And it's just, just sitting here talking to you now, just, I feel so, so sad. And what, he just wanted to do it for all his mates in the team. That's who he wanted to do. That's why he came and played, because he wanted to do it for the mates in his team. I'm looking at a photo of that team right now, a photo of us in the goals. What a bloke, though. To be that sick, to play so well in a final. Ah, oh, yeah, exactly. None of us really, really realised how ill he was. 
and how much he must have willed himself through to play in that game. That's why that game sticks out in my mind so much. And for everything he gave the rest of us, like for two or three blokes in that team, that was the first grand final we'd won it for. You know, I'd been playing senior hockey since uh, 1985 was my first year, and this was 2009. So that's 20-odd years that I've been playing, having played about three finals in 20 years, and there I'm winning yeah, off the back of efforts like that. And oh, it makes you stop for a second and also think about how, you know, how fragile life is, and you should enjoy every moment and not take any of those moments for granted. And he, he made the most out of the life that he had, and he was determined that whatever was going on with him was not going to hold him back if he could avoid it. Now, I mentioned the grand final I saw him playing. It must be said that the night before that grand final that he scored a hat-trick in was his 21st birthday. Now, he's rolled up to the game the next day in, with, with his mates, in an old Holden. So there's six or seven of these guys squeezed into this car and they've been sitting in the, the, the car's pulled up and they've sat there for, I don't know, 20 minutes before Jason's emerged to come down. Now, I don't know what was going on in that car, but I'll guarantee you it wasn't performance enhancing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I, I just have some fond memories of the bloke. And for some reason, that is my definition of giving everything you can to your teammates. And you can't tell me that you've given everything you can to your team because Musty's already taught me what that is. And so don't get ahead of yourself, Princess. Try as hard as you can. It's all right if you fail. Just keep trying. What was he like as a man? What was he like as a human being? He loved life. He loved life. He loved what life had to offer. And he was kind. He was reasonable. He was outgoing. It was good fun. But he loved life, and uh, he was an adoring father. He moved him and his daughter moved back into his father's house, and he, he was looking after his daughter. And mum wasn't capable at that particular time, and he stepped up. You know, as as much as he might have been a party boy, he realised that you know there's uh, when responsibility slaps you in the face, you've got to step up to it. Yeah, I think he did. He tried. He tried as hard as he could to be a good man, which is all you can expect from anybody. And this, I suppose, is the essence of sports. Sport is doing something or trying to do something good with your mates. Yeah, um, yeah. It's not, as much as we might like sport, and I talked to you before about the contest, I love the contest. That is what drags me into whatever sport it may be. I love that moment of the contest, in that moment. But... The other thing that keeps you coming back is the people that are in that moment with you. And sometimes that moment is you and someone else doing something together or you and five people doing something else together. In the team I'm going to talk about for my third game, I remember distinctly a play we had. We came back out after halftime and it's become sort of a bit of a legend amongst the blokes that played in that team now. And it was centre forward, pushes back to me at centre half. I hit it to right wing. Right wing runs down the right wing, smashes it into the D, and big Davo, who didn't start playing hockey until he was 45, comes racing in off the left wing, and within a foot inside the D, just one hit, one step hit, smashes it past the goalie. Now, that's about 
15 seconds after half time. But it was, it was something about the synergy between all of us that went on there. There was like a knowing that happened in that tiny moment. And those things are really important, those moments you share with other people and an acknowledgement between you all that those moments have happened. But should we get on to the next game? Because that follows on from a bit from what you're talking about. I was about to set that one up. I was going to give you the chance to grab another beer if you wanted. Yeah, that's going to be a good idea, Taya. You can leave that bit in, but maybe perhaps edit out the silence while I go and get that beer. <laughs> yes. The Half Court Press is a multi-sport media outlet. You can check out our articles, opinion pieces and PDF magazines on our website, www.halfcourtpressmagazine.com. Game three. What has been your favourite game of hockey as a veteran player? Now, John, you were saying that you were 16 in 1983, which by my account would now put you at the young age of 35. 54, I think. I'm about to, I think I'm about to turn 55. I was born in 1967. Yes. So I've turned 55 this year, do I? I have to ask my mum. Since <laughs> since the time I was about four, mid-40s, my mum has more of an idea of how old than I do. Anyway. So I believe that you are playing, currently you are playing under 55s? Uh, no, I play over 50s. We go over 50s, over 60s. Uh, I think there might even be an over-70s competition starting soon. Because when I first started playing senior hockey, none of those grades existed. Yes. So my first year of senior hockey, when I turned 18, I played three games for the fifth grade team because I'd come up. I got stuck at left wing and nobody in amongst the whole bunch of old blokes that have been playing together for the last 15 years passed me the ball. I immediately dropped to the worst team in the club or the lowest team in the club. And that happened to be playing the lowest grade in the association and there was no veterans so i was 18 playing against blokes who are 50 and dead keen on still playing like i am still dead keen on playing and i i actually got taught a lot of lessons about how you should go about playing hockey by these old fellas that i was playing against and we were a terrible team i was playing fullback and we would, we would get flogged we drew one game in two years and the game that we drew, we celebrated like we'd had a win. We thought we'd won the premiership. <laughs> it was, so and we got horrible, horrible lessons. But some of those lessons I still apply today to the way you go about things. Like how? Being strong about what you do. Don't let people push you around. Stand up for what you're doing. That you've got to be mentally strong. Also, what I learned is you've got to be disciplined. You can't have guys running around just doing what they want to do. If you want to be an effective team, it's great that you've got guys that have got extra skill and can break lines and all that sort of stuff and rah, rah. But if everybody's just running around doing what they want to do, you're going nowhere, regardless of how good an individual player is. Everybody has to buy in to a level of communal acknowledgement about what our aims and the way we want to play the game are. And then all those other little skills that everybody has, those little things that they can do, can shine. If you haven't got that core to work from all of that stuff that they pull off just becomes a a little trick that they can do during the game that has no effect and has no purpose yeah that's what i really learned was you've got to be a team and 
you've got to have synergy amongst the players. Players have to believe in each other. And what that means is, because I predominantly played lower grades, we've all seen the situation where some bloke comes along to play the game and he's not very good. And he gets out there and he has a bit of a crack, but he's not very good. And you'll get guys in your team start going, he's not very good, he's not playing right. That's the worst thing you can do, especially to a person that's, A, not very good or not very experienced. You've got to back the worst player in your team to the absolute hilt. You've got to support them as much as you possibly can because that's how you're going to get the best out of them. If the worst guy on your team is standing out there at left wing, and everybody moans every time you hit, no one will hit it to him because they think he can't trap, then he will never trap. You've got to keep hitting the ball to them. Make that person believe that you want them to do well. If they're waiting for that ball to come to them and they're going, oh, I'm going to get bagged. If I miss that, I'm going to get bagged. They will miss it. Guarantee you they will miss the ball. They're getting solid backup and support. Don't worry, mate, the next one's coming. All of that sort of stuff. I'm not talking about playing classic league or international hockey. I'm talking about the the way it works at grassroots level with people. People who aren't going to specialist training camps are turning up every weekend to go and have a game of hockey because they love it. The next team I'm going to talk about, the next game, epitomises that to the the highest level. It is the team I'm going to talk about. If it wasn't for our ability to support the people that couldn't really play, we would have got nowhere. But we did support the, those people and we gave them the belief that, A, they could do it and the support that it didn't matter if they couldn't, that we were there to enjoy our game with everybody else and we're all in this collectively. If you stuff up, we've all stuffed up. Before we move on, the regular listeners to your hockey podcast, which you co-host with... Uh, a certain Matt Allen. Yeah. You have won several Veterans League pennants. I have. In a but row. I'm not going to talk about them. Now, you are also quite superstitious, I believe. You <laughs> a, a, a certain shirt for a considerable length of time because, because it is a winning shirt. That is correct. Has this been washed? Has this been replaced? No, the shirt, well, I had to I had to buy another shirt because the club changed shirts. But that particular shirt has never been washed. No, it's, it's still hanging. It's never it hasn't been played in since, but it's it's never been washed since last won a grand final. That's for sure. Where is it now? It's hanging up in my clothes rack inside. It doesn't smell because it, it just doesn't smell. It's dirty. Give you that. The collar's pretty grimy. I've got to admit, but it it doesn't smell at all. Especially because it's winter sport hockey, you get you guaranteed it's going to get washed two or three times a season, aren't you? <laughs> at least in Perth, you know, in England you probably get it washed every week, but playing in Perth it only rains three or four times a year. So I play my, my club hockey in Scotland, and I've come off the pitch before with club mates going, "Well, we get in the shower for warmth, less so for actually needing a wash." <laughs> <laughs> but that actually that shirt story starts from the game I'm going to bring up. Your favourite game of hockey as a veteran player. So what is the background yep. of this? Well, in season 2013, I was expecting to continue playing the Metro 3s grade. Uh, I would have been ooh, 45. Might have been 46. I can't remember. 46, I think it was. And I was still happy playing the open, open age hockey. 
I can still run around at fullback and direct players around and make sure that we at least played with some sort of form and and those sorts of things. I thought, oh, yeah, well, we've got a chance of playing some finals with that team this year. Anyway, before the season started, some club people approached me, oh, no, you've got to come and play in for over 40s. Come and play in over 40s. Come and play. So I said yes. Little did I know that they weren't talking about going playing with the currently already playing over 40s team. They were talking about a new team they were forming in over 40s Division 4. And the team that became the Mighty Crabs, Division 4 Crabs, we were a mighty team now, but we didn't start out so mighty. So, OK, I'm playing uh, over 40s. Yeah, oh, I know all those guys. They're all good players. Then I'll get down to the ground and find out, no, I don't know anybody here. <laughs> and there's only seven of us for the first game. And uh, we got flogged, mightily got flogged. The club treasurer made the, uh, the mistake of approaching me after the game and saying, how are you going with your fees this year, John? Uh, and after having been flogged 14-0 with seven players, I wasn't in the mood to, to hear that question. What it, what it actually what it actually started is is from that game, there was Ollie, South African fullback, who will feature again as we talk about this, and a fellow by the name of Davo. Davo was our club president's husband. Davo had promised that he would never ever ever play hockey he was he was a hockey widower his missus was always at hockey great player lee lee abbott she's tremendous hockey player a great servant to hockey in wa she's won hockey wa achievement awards i think she might even be a life member but davo had for years stayed away from hockey and at the age of 45 he got talked into coming down and playing with us never played before we had a couple of other guys that had never played before and a couple of other guys that had played for four or five years. So we were a pretty, pretty average team, <laughs> it must be said. So by the end of that season, we spent most of that season playing with seven or eight players. Most games, occasionally we got a chop out from the other over 40s team when fixturing allowed it, but most games we played short and we got flogged unmercifully. And the funny thing about playing for Fremantle is that Nobody likes Fremantle, but they all like playing us. They all love, but every club in Perth loves beating Fremantle. There's no doubt about that. Mind you, Fremantle loves beating every other club. So the end, that, that was a really tough season. That was 2015. But our captain at that stage, Sean, Sean the Elder as he became known, he had a plan and he, he had a five-year plan and he'd worked it out and he said, at the end of that first year, he said to me, I'm building a team based on character. I reckon, doesn't matter how good a hockey player you are, if we get the right blokes in this team, we can win this grade. Now, admittedly, over 40s to DV4, not the best grade in the world, but there's some good hockey players and good teams still playing in that grade. And what you tend to find, especially in these veteran grades, is teams that are quite good in a grade above, they might have a team that they know they can't beat. So they will drop down a grade because they know they can't win that grade because that team in that grade's too good for them. So they will drop down a grade and try and pitch a lower grade premiership. And it happens all the time. Much as hockey authorities will go, no, 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 it does. We've seen it, we know. Anyway, second season comes along. I missed the first half of the season through a, a Bailey-related shoulder injury, uh, which is not what it sounds like, but I separated my clavicle from my sternum 
on one side and cracked the the collarbone down near the shoulder on that same shoulder and on the other shoulder ripped all the ligaments out of my arm so I missed the first half of the season made my debut playing kicking fullback <laughs> on a day where it absolutely bucketed rain and my hands turned blue on the stick <laughs> um, but we played out that year but by the time that we got to the end of the year we picked up a couple of guys who had never played the game before but the kids were playing at Fremantle so our captain Sean the Elder was at that time the barman and he started speaking to these guys at the bar and he talked there was three, four or five of them that he talked into coming down and having a go and these guys who'd never played the game before became the core of the team that entered the 2015 season so we were a very inexperienced you know guys who played soccer or football one of the guys that came along his brother's a very famous australian rules footballer here in perth and here he is down there having a crack at hockey there's obviously some sporting great pedigree in a lot of them but they never held a hockey stick so we got to season 2015 and thought look this is a season we can really improve and we've got a full squad every week. We know we've, we're going to have 13 blokes at least because this is our list and we're all committed to do this. We all, we're very committed to it. So we get to the first game of the season and uh, being the, one of the senior members, as I was, or experienced members, I gave the pre-game talk. And we're playing against Old Guildford, a team that in previous seasons in this grade had, had played in the grand final the year before. I think they won it the year before that. They were pretty good. Team. They'd always towered us up. They'd flogged us every time we played. So we come to the first game of the season. We're up against Old Guildford. And uh, John gets up to make a big pre-game speech. And it's, uh, OK, boys, we know these guys are a good team. Let's not worry about the result. Let's worry about the process. Let's try and improve. Let's, let's use this as an opportunity to measure ourselves against a really good team and work on our combinations and get better and strive to get better, blah, blah, bullshit, bullshit. Anyway... So we go out there and win 2-0. And the first comment as we're walking off the field is, well, you're not giving the bloody pre-game speech again, are you? And ever since that moment, I've been banned from giving pre-game speeches. Oh, don't worry about the score. If we lose, it doesn't matter. And so I've never been allowed to give a pre-game speech since that day to that team. But we had a very good season and... We gelled not because we were great players, but everybody became committed to the sort of hockey we wanted to play. And because we weren't great players up against some teams that were on paper, inverted commas, far better than us, we had to fight and grind. And that's what we did for the next three years. We've ground teams into the ground. We ran harder than them. We tackled harder than them. We tried harder than them. And it's funny because when you're playing over divisions, over 40s, Division 4, there's very much a sense that, oh, we're just running around having a hit and having a good time and it's all for fun, which is right, but I'm not wasting my time committing to this just to run around and have a hit. I want to win. And we got that ideology into the playing group. No, yeah, it's good. It's all fun and that, but we're making a commitment, so we want to win. Yes. That is so important in lower league hockey. It's I've played for clubs where a bunch of guys just want to get out of the house for two hours. Yeah. It's not, it's not the same. 
And look, we all wanted to get out of the house as well. We all wanted to hang around with our mates afterwards and drink beers. And as a social unit, we'd get on fabulously. But we also understood that we're given this opportunity to get on fabulously because we win, because we are a solid group of people that are all aiming for the same thing. And one of the other things, and this comes back to this club hockey thing, Tao, one of the things that happened that year is I started writing weekly roundups of our game every week. Now, at that stage, Matt Allen, our good friend Matt, was looking after what they called the Magpie, which was the Fremantle Hockey Club newsletter. And he wanted every team to put in a report every week about their games. So people were following that line, but it was very much, oh, we won 3-1, Barry got a goal, uh, Jonesy was pretty good at the back. You know, pretty boring stuff. I decided I wasn't going to stand for that. <laughs> I was not going to stand for that at all. So I started writing weekly reports for our team. And it's amazing what an effect it had in had on us becoming that collective. I'm not saying it's my, oh, I should take all the credit for it, far from it. But it, we suddenly developed our own identity as a group of individuals, if you like, we're the crabs. We're not very good, but you know what? We try really bloody hard and we're going to take it up to you every week. And we started to instill uh, a mythology amongst the team, for a better term. We had our own mythology, which is really important. Hockey completely lacks mythology. Yes. The great stories, you know, we created our own. Now, I've got my season 2015 crabs Roundup report here. Now, I printed out at the end of the season all of my team weekly team reports as a as a little book to give to all of the players. And uh, when I was reading back through it, it's part hockey and part just taking the piss with mates. It's partly talking about what we need to do as a hockey team and how we can improve and how we can support each other. And it's partly just having a joke. And that's essentially that is grassroots hockey. It's trying to be as good as you can, not getting too hung up if you can't, if you don't, but striving for it all the time and having fun at the same time. And what I should do is serialise this on the reverse stick tail. I'll tell you what, some of it's actually pretty funny reading back now. But anyway, we managed to get that season to a preliminary final. We won our first final against our arch rivals, Melville. The week after that they'd beaten us in the last game of the season, we got up over the top and absolutely flogged them in the first final. Got to a preliminary final and sadly didn't lose the game, but it went to strokes. I think it was uh, one all after extra, extra time. We played 120 minutes of hockey to come up with a draw. Two 10 minutes and the two five minutes, something like that. It was a, a great game. I think personally it was probably my best ever game. I can say that reasonably comfortably. I played centre-half that year, and I don't know whether... I don't, I wasn't the best player in the field, I wouldn't think, but I did what a centre-half should have to do in a game like that, you know, and walked off that field immensely proud of not only myself, but all my teammates, even though we ended up losing on flicks. And we missed out on the grand final, but that was the game where we went, as a collective, we went, oh, yeah. Yeah, we're good enough. Now, we won the next, that team went on and won the next two grand finals against, in each of those seasons, against teams that had gone close in the grade above 
the year before and dropped down because they knew they couldn't beat the team that was better than them in the grade they were in. So they dropped down grades and they ran into us and they got beaten. And they these teams actually told that to us. They said that. We thought we were going to come down to V4 and pick up a cheap premiership. And I feel such a great sense of pride about that team because we weren't great hockey players at all, but we played good hockey. We played really good good smart hockey umpires would say to us gee you guys play a really good brand opposition would say you guys play really good hockey we love playing you because you play good hockey and you don't get that often you don't you certainly don't get umpires telling you you played good hockey very often let alone oppositions and it was an amazing season and a fantastic bunch of fellow I had. There was another John Lee playing in that team. So there was two John Lees playing. And everybody got their own nickname. The other John Lee was Tonto. He's a Chinese-Australian guy, but he's very he's six foot, six foot three or something like that, got the big black ponytail. And we called him Tonto because he looked like bloody Tonto. <laughs> but he was Chinese-Australian. He loved it. Festa at fullback. What do you think a bloke called Festa <laughs> looks like? Was he a good-looking fellow, was he? Well, people used to call him Shrek, and I said, no, no, no. Shrek is a, a reasonable, decent human being. Festa's a, a nutbag. Uncle Festa was a nutbag. You're a nutbag. We're calling you Festa. Just was this amazing group of personalities that all bought into a common cause, buying into the common cause. No one cared if... Billy, you know, had a problem. He had to attend court on Friday. No one cared that this happened or so-and-so was doing this or some external thing was going on. We're here on Saturday afternoon. We're all playing hockey. We're all supporting each other. And that was it. Have fun. Boys, if it doesn't work out, don't matter. Keep supporting each other. Now, some of what you've described feeds in or ties into what was going to be my next question about tournaments. Yep. Uh, But formatting. Now, the Australian format of you can win your, you get a pennant for winning uh, the minor premiership of, you know, the, the straight up league format, yep. which is more common in Europe. You have yep. league and that's it. Now, in Scotland, where I play, the Premier Division, we call it, yep. has a similar setup in terms of we have the top four teams going to a playoff. Yep. Similar to us. Yeah, so for more on this, we have the Scottish women's championship winning coach of Western Wildcats, Karina Cuthbert, she discusses how her team came forth and then wins the playoffs. Yep. How do you like this? How do- I think it's perfect. I think it's absolutely wonderful. See, I don't know if you guys realise how wonderful a thing like finals is. Mate, the grass is greener. The air, everything smells so much nicer come finals time. If you're playing finals... Everything is better. It's so true. I didn't realise for a long time because I hardly ever played any finals. But once I'd played in that first lot of finals with the Crabs, it was like, oh, yeah, it is a different day. It is a different experience. And we talked before about the idea that sport is in the moment, right? And that's what finals provide you, that moment. How good are you in that moment? Yeah, you can drag it out over a season. Oh, yeah, you know. But come the time, you know, cometh the hour, cometh the man, that sort of stuff. I think it's absolutely perfect. And the other thing is that 
you, when you just follow the lead model, the season can be over halfway or three quarters of the way through. You just know that team's going to finish top and no one's going to get near them. And what are you actually playing for anymore? Uh, sometimes what happens over a long season is teams go through injuries, they drop a game here, they drop a game there, rah, rah, whatever might happen. When you get to that finals time, all that stuff goes out the window and it becomes the moment. And that's why we love the grand final the way of any sport, while in Australia especially, because it becomes about the moment. The moment becomes even more special. It's not that, oh, well, we lost that moment this week, we've got next week. No, no, mate, the moment is now and it's gone. And there is no moment after it. I would normally try and think of some witty one-liners here or trying to think of a good point in order to be the devil's advocate. Yeah. But I, I remember listening to a another podcast which you, you were on where you discussed this very thing with your colleague Ashley Morrison on... Oh. I'm not the pretty show. Melanchino, the great Melanchino. <laughs> the talking Chino. Yeah. Now, Ashley is a fantastic journalist for hockey. Mm. I've, I've read a really good book uh, from him about the hockey holy grail on the Aussie yep. Olympic men's team and their, their quest to win a, an Olympic gold medal. But even though he is linked with the hockey media in Australia, he's from the UK. Yeah. And so he's grown up with this European model of you win the league. What he was saying, it's such a hard thing just to win a league over the course of a season. And that is worthy in itself of a medal, a trophy of that prestige. Oh, yeah, you, you get a trophy. You get a, you get a pennant. You get the Garth Arda pennant. So everything uh, well, for our hockey here, we get a pennant. So um, the club gets a, after the grand final, the umpires line up and we all have speeches and the umpires present the winning team with a pennant that says whatever the grade is, premiers and the, the year. So there is a pennant for winning the league for the year, but it's, it's not the pinnacle. So it's not the pinnacle, it's minor to the playoff final. Yeah, absolutely, no doubt. The big game's grand final because it is the moment. And it's we, all about the moment. What we used to do here in Scotland, now it's described a bit more by Cass Cuppert in her interview, which will come out after this one. What she was describing was if you won the league in Scotland, then have a playoff against the team that won the cup, Scottish League champion versus Scottish Cup winners for the European spot, for the European Hockey League place the following season. What do you think about that? Oh, look. It's not really in my place to go telling other nations how they should run their competitions, but I'll have a crack at it if you like. Um, (laughs) um, That's the system I've grown up with. I love it. Every sport, every team sport I've ever played in this country has a final system. We have the round robins that sort out who are the top teams and who are the not so good teams, and then you go into a final system. So I've never played outside of that system. So that makes it a bit hard for him. Do I prefer? Yes, of course I prefer this because I love it. I've grown up with it. And maybe I've grown accustomed to what finals actually are and the excitement that builds up around finals. And they're extra free games. You pay your fees, 
you play a league, and then you get finals. You don't pay extra to play finals. They're extra games on top as well. So you can you can say there's a financial incentive if you wanted to. Free games, yeah. I'll be umpires. You get the best umpires playing finals because they're not spread out across every grade possible because there's less games going on. So you get better umpires, and which sometimes it come finals time, depending on what grade you you're playing, can be a real factor because teams get used to playing with poor umpires and getting away with things that when you've got a good umpire, they can't get away with anymore. Yeah. So the top team in your league might be the biggest hackers in the world, and that's why they've finished top of the league, because they've been allowed to hack their way through the season. And they get to the finals, and suddenly their hacking goes out the window, because you do that, mate, I'm sending you off. See you later. So th- th- there's, there's all sorts of different scenarios that happen through that finals time. It's brilliant. And I've played in teams that have finished high up the ladder and gone nowhere in finals. I've seen, there, there was famously a team playing a particular grade here in Perth at Fremantle. There were the same bunch of blokes that played the same grade for 10 years, and they would religiously creep into fourth spot either in the last round or the second last round, and somehow or other would win the grand final. Every, um, they probably won seven out of ten doing that, creeping in in fourth spot with a week to go. Late bloomers, late bloomers. Yeah, timing their run. Look, tennis players do it in opens. The best players never play the best tennis at the beginning of the tournament, do they? Never. When do you want to be playing your best tennis? At the end of the tournament. Even see, tennis has finals. The Half Court Press is now on Patreon. Patreon is a well-known and trusted online platform that allows our fans to support the sports journalism that we create. We offer a tiered subscription plan with more content being made available to our fans who choose to spend a bit more each month. We at the Half Court Press would appreciate any and all support that you wish to contribute towards our articles, podcasts and interviews. As we begin to wind up, Mm. I have a few regular questions which I ask everyone. I also have (laughs) some surprise questions for you. Okay. Jay Bloomfeld, John Lee is one of our journalists who is kindly come onto the show. Now, Jay Bloomfeld is your editor at the <laughs> Hockey World News magazine, the premium magazine for hockey related matters in the English language world. I would agree with that statement. Of which you've written a few articles yourself. Yeah. He wants to know when you are writing your next article for the Hockey World News. Oh, oh, oh does he? Yeah. Oh, if Jade, if you're listening, DM me because I've got a couple of ideas. It's just work's getting in the way at the moment. But I love writing, Tao. And actually, what I should do is send you some copies of, send you some of my old team reports. You know, you get the gist of it. But I would spend 
five or six hours on a Monday night writing my team reports might go 10 paragraphs. When I write things, I do deliberately pick over every word. Now, not everything's correct and not everything's great and blah, blah, I get that. But the effort that goes into it is quite substantial. I've got to say that. And I wasn't really happy with the last piece that I gave Jade, and I'm still trying to work through my disappointment over that. Not that anybody, because I don't get, mate, I get no feedback basically about anything I say or do about hockey, virtually none. So I'm not upset about that. It was purely how I felt personally about it. So, but I've got a couple of other pieces in my mind, you know, financial reporting and that sort of stuff, perhaps. Rule changes, getting rid of the pro league. The, the one big one I'd like to talk about is how not just our sport in hockey, but many sports have had two years now for the opportunity to reassess where they are and what they're doing. And you know what? They're all still pushing through with the same old shit-ass model that they had before COVID struck. Well, sorry, COVID's changed everything. Those models do not work anymore. Some sports are trying to adapt better than others, but our sport almost blindly refuses to accept that it's even happened. Yeah. It's a great opportunity to reset what should our primary focuses be. And you know what? International hockey is not a money spinner. If I don't know if the FIH has realised this yet. Maybe that's because they haven't done their financials. I don't know. But um, Where's push that barrel, mate. I'm pushing that barrel hard. But they had the, the perfect opportunity to be able to sit back and reassess and say, OK, stop for a second, everybody. Take a deep breath. Let's have a think about the game. But no, we've just tried to bulldoze our way through, not just us as a sport, it must be said. But that I find really disappointing. It will probably be a good basis for an article. Jade also wants to know, <laughs> Jade is also surprised that you've not picked a particular match as one of your three favourites. Your shootout contest against your <laughs> co-host, Matt Allen, uh, it's because he cheated. He cheated. Look at the vision. Scott was right. Look at the vision. It's a poorly miscarriage of justice, that Smithy. And Smithy still comes up and com- he complains to me that Matt hasn't bought him a bottle of Jim Beam yet. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I'm the wrong bloke to be complaining to, just quietly. This was the infamous shootout competition between... Reverse Dick podcast, co-host Matt Allen and John Lee, which is on YouTube. It is. There is video evidence. There were allegations, I've been told false allegations made about bribery of the goalkeeper. Not false, mate. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Don't listen to what Alan says. Now, now John, what was, what was the final score of that match, of that shootout competition? Oh, he got more than me. He got more than me. This guy scored legitimate goals. <laughs> Come on. Are you suggesting that the that Smithy, your goalkeeper, maybe let in a few soft ones? You can hear me on the video. Matt has this shot and he, he drags his foot back. He's got it covered and he pulls his foot back and you can hear me in the background. Smithy, what are you doing? <laughs> See, Smithy, Smithy was my goalkeeper that season. Not mine, but our team's goalkeeper that season. And that season, he actually played, had an outstanding season. He was stopping things going left, right and centre. If you if you wanted to guarantee yourself scoring a goal against Smithy that year, what you did is hit it straight to him. 
and go straight between his legs. But if you tried some tricky shot that you thought would make it hard for the goalkeeper, not a chance. He had it covered. He was all over it. And, uh, yeah, I'm cheating. Jesus, he's a cheat. <laughs> he cheat. It's all on video, Matt. I know he's going to listen. It's all on video, mate. It's all there. Now, the three games of hockey that we have picked on, we have focused on, game one was a grand finale after a year-long, season-long rivalry. Yep. Uh, where you came out on top and won the pennant. Against the Kung Fu Kiddies. Yep, as a youth team player. Game two was a happy but sad memory. To me, it's a fond reminder of a fabulous guy. It was like, I don't know, it, 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 it just sticks into my mind watching him play that day, knowing where he was at in his life and just willing, a player absolutely willing himself. You, you see that very often with players willing themselves, but when someone's going through what we knew that was going on with him, it just was one of the most outstanding efforts I think I've ever seen. And that includes international play, whatever you want to call it. But And he was doing it for mates. He was doing it for his friends. And game three was the pinnacle of a development of a team over a period yeah. of time. Yeah. It was, it was the moment that team really came of age and realised that they could play really good hockey and they could succeed. If you could pick only one of these games, which would it be? I'd have to say the last one, only because of... As remarkable as the game against that involved Jason, that that's a very personal thing for the reasons that I remember that game so fondly. Whereas the the preliminary final was more about the collective and what the collective was able to do in following years. I mean, as you brought up that I'd won a few, that was the first of five on the trot, and uh, all of them involved players that were in that team that lost that preliminary final. And all of those guys I'll oh, have lifelong friendships with. When we get together, unless we say we're getting together to specifically talk hockey, it's a hoot. I have such a great time with that bunch of guys and and there's no judgment made of anybody. And when I say no judgment made, we unmercifully take the Mickey out of each other. So it, it's uh, you know, nothing sacred, but the group is, if you know what I mean, what, what yeah. goes on in Vegas sort of thing. And, and we're not running around with groupies or anything stupid like that. When We're not going away for dirty boys' weekends, we're behind the missus' back or anything like that. And, in fact, most of the guys' wives say, you go off and enjoy your hockey, darling, because <laughs> they know their husbands are safe in that group of blokes. So all we're going to do is stand around and drink piss and talk to each other. Now, John, I... I'm going to grant you your ultimate wish. I am yeah. going to wave the magic wand and make you the head of the International Hockey Federation <laughs> for a day. You get to do one thing for hockey. What one thing would you change or do for hockey? Oh, God. One thing. Oh, oh one thing. Sack the board. I don't. I don't think any one thing can make any difference. I think it's so far gone that it's it's beyond just one thing. In terms of the FIH, I mean, 
It could be anything. It could change a rule or give more money to something okay. else or promote a particular aspect of the game. Oh, that's a good one. I've got lots of ideas. One of, picking one of them. You know what? I would make people follow the rules. And by that, I mean constitutionally, across the board. I see it in our local hockey competitions all the way up to the FIH. If you have a rule, stick to it and own that rule. And if you need to, be quite brutal about it. Because when you start ignoring your own rules, people, A, lose confidence, and they also don't care anymore. And there's some classic cases of this. Take, for instance, the, the Pro League. You know, you must name your, your list of players by such and such a date. Now, the reason that rule's in there is so that broadcasters can sort stuff out, everybody, programs can be printed, all that sort of stuff. There are real reasons for having a rule like that in place. Now, when no team gave a toss about that in the first season of Pro League and yeah. just decided they'd pick whoever they could, who wanted to pick on whatever particular day, no one had their team rosters filled out. Broadcasters can't do graphics. Commentators can't do their stats and their player profiles. There's a whole list of things that can't happen because you haven't followed the rules. Now, if the FIH is going to stand up for those rules and say, why haven't you done this by this date? It's going to cost you 10 grand. We're not going to let you play players that aren't on that list and stand up for the rules they have. Then why, why should I care if the umpire's blown the whistle that it's hit my foot? Well, it doesn't matter, mate. Rules don't matter in the FIH. You should know that. I'm just going to play on. And that, that's, I mean, I know that's a horribly extreme way to look at it, but that filters down the line. It absolutely filters down the line. We've got rules here that I know in the last season alone in, in WA hockey, the local hockey association just mm, turned a blind eye to it. Well, you can't do that. Stand by the rules you have in place. Stand for something. Because if you don't stand for something, you stand for nothing. And that's how I feel the FIH are at the moment. They stand for nothing. Last question. Yep. Why are you a hockey fan? What makes it such a good sport? Well, it's a player's sport. Matt Allen often says that, and it is truly a player's sport. It's it's not a fan sport, which is really sad. Hockey is special as it is for the players. It is. It's a player's game, and that makes it hard to promote. It makes it hard to draw new people in. New people very often, once they get and they understand the game, they get in and they play a couple of games, and if they get the right support behind them, they love it. They get it. And hockey's also a warrior's sport. Don't forget, we play with a weapon and a missile. And that is so true. I mean, hockey used to be a game thousands and a few thousand years ago that warriors played to practice because the only weapons they had were clubs and rocks, had, that's a lot of the development, the ancient development of games like hockey. The South American Aztecs and stuff like that played games with clubs because that's how warriors learn to hit stuff, <laughs> like humans. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it is still a warrior's game. You have to have a level of not only trust in your own team but in the opposition because we're all carrying a weapon it's no good running around whacking people with a hockey stick on a hockey field because guess what? Everybody is armed, mate. 
and they'll all whack you back. Okay, so there's a lot of trust involved in a game of hockey. And there's an acceptance that you will get hurt playing. You won't get hurt because someone's deliberately taken a shot at you. You all get hurt because it's part of the game. You're going to wear the odd ball. You're going to get a stick around your ankles. You know what I mean? It's a far tougher sport. People think that hockey players are crazy. Oh, it's too dangerous. Well, it's not really dangerous. It's only dangerous when nuffies like you come around and think they can just swing their stick everywhere. Anyway, it is a warrior sport, Taya. You've got to admit that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a tough game. I'm a, I'm a goalie, so, you know. <laughs> oh, no, you're just, you're just crazy, mate. There's a difference. <laughs> John Lee from Fremantle Hockey Club and the Reverse Dick Global Hockey Podcast. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Taya, and thank you for giving me the opportunity. Also, thank you very much for supporting the Reverse Stick over the last how many ever years it's been. You, you've been a very good supporter of ours, and we do very much appreciate it. And good luck for the, uh, the rest of these episodes. It's been an absolute pleasure, mate. This has been a Half Court Press production by Teo McLeod. If you have enjoyed this show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, and Facebook.